In his gospel account, Luke retells the stories and teachings of Jesus. We see a picture of the Holy Spirit at work fulfilling the Father's redemption plan through the life and ministry of his Son. He reminds us that the gospel is a matter of the heart, the inner person, not mere external religion. The gospel is a call to reevaluate everything in the world according to God's perspective, not our own. To value mercy over justice, humility over prestige, to value favor with God over favor with people. It's a message of peace, an offering of forgiveness, and an invitation to enter the kingdom of God. The Gospel of Luke. Uh, now, one update on the announcements, the, um, the evangelism course. Uh, Daniel is not here. He called me and he's got a, a pretty hefty cold right now. And so he's not here this morning. But if you are interested in learning about it or anything like that, uh, then just see me at the end of the service. I'll give you his number. And he's watching us right now. And he'll be ready to take your calls if you want to learn more about it and be part of that. And it's really worth uh, being part of. Well, I hope you're open uh, to Luke in your instruments and in your Bibles and uh, chapter 20. And uh, does it start at verse 47 or 27? Is that right? I'm looking at the person who knows everything about my sermon. That's right. Okay. Yeah. So I, because I need to know what to do next. <laughs> Let me, I'm going to start a little differently today. I've been thinking about this a lot. We go through the Bible verse by verse. One thing that has to happen to understand how the Bible relates to us is to first understand how it related to the first audience. To understand somewhat of their culture and some of the distinctives about them that aren't the same with us. And so just to give you an example, because it becomes important as we look at what's happening in this last week of Jesus' life. He's right near the cross and that you need to know. First, when Jesus refers to scriptures or I'll say something like that same story is in uh, uh, the fifth chapter of the book of Isaiah like I did last week, uh, you need to know that the people knew these stories. They had tremendous memories and uh, uh, the, the memories that we have today, we don't need memories. If I want to know something, I just say, Google, what's it? and, and there it is. And then I forget it pretty quick. I mean, unfortunately, that's true. We've, our memories have been dumbed down. But they had tremendous memories. And people, when they spoke, especially prophets and, and uh, any kind of religious leaders at all, always spoke using specific metaphors and ideas and sounds. Even especially in the, both the Hebrew and the Greek language, there were words that were sounds that would remind the people of things. And, uh, and people would remember uh, what they have said. Like one of my favorites in the Greek language is there's a, a word, gaguzo. Gaguzo. Some of you have been here, you've heard me talk about it. Gaguzo. What's it mean? It means to murmur and to gossip. Gaguzo, to murmur. I don't like that. And so when, uh, it, when that word was used, people would immediately change their thinking. Uh, when I say in the sermon, as I will today, uh, we're, we're going to look at Psalm 110 at one point, everybody there, not just the religious leaders, but everybody there knew that whole psalm by heart. It was a Messianic psalm. There's a group of songs called the Hallel songs, uh, Psalms 
that they sang, and I've mentioned this often, when they were going into the temple. Everybody had memorized them really the same way we memorize our songs that we sing and worship God with. We know many of them uh, by memory. And so uh, their understanding at the time that we're looking at in the crowds going into Jerusalem, everybody knew what Jesus had been doing and what he had been saying. And everybody was talking about it and had been for a while. And everybody believed that Jesus was probably the Messiah. And some believe he really was the Messiah, but they had the wrong view of Messiah because they were taught by their leaders the Messiah was going to take over the Roman government and he was going to, they were going to you know, be in charge again and all that kind of thing. They did not understand, even though Jesus said over and over again that he was going to be crucified, he was going to die, he was going to be entombed, he was going to raise from the dead. To his very disciples, he said that. Uh, they thought he was using some kind of metaphor. They didn't understand and when Jesus confronts the religious leaders, they're confronting him constantly. They're confronting him because they know that he's claiming to be God. They know that. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And, and they're upset because they're more worried about their position under the Romans than who Jesus is. They want to get rid of him. They're not thinking of crucifying him. That wasn't even in their minds. They just want to get rid of him. And so they're trying to trick him with, his story, with these silly things. The one today is the silliest of all that they'll say, thinking that Jesus can't answer them properly. But when Jesus accused them of being wrong, they knew exactly what he meant. And so I say that because if you're going to really understand the Bible, it's very, very important that you do all you can to learn. That's why maybe a good study Bible would be a good start. Uh, to learn the culture and the way that the people thought. So here, in where we are in Luke, in the last week of Jesus' life, Luke is uh, uh, writing a word picture of Jesus' life from creation to the cross and the resurrection. Or more accurately, uh, Jesus is living out his life from eternity to ascension in a way that will only be realized when Jesus rises from the dead, ascends back to the Father's side, and sends his Holy Spirit, who will now direct his apostles. At the Last Supper, Jesus prefigured his humility by washing the disciples' feet and set up the next step for his arrest and trial. He knew his time had come. In John's gospel, that's a theme all the way through John's gospel. His time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. It wasn't his time yet. And then finally, Jesus in John chapter 17, especially but other places, said, my time has come. And Jesus knew at this last supper that his time had come. So he sends Judas away, knowing that he, that is Judas, would set the wheels of his, Jesus' destiny into motion. And then Jesus demonstrates his authority as Messiah. We studied this last time by riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey with the people singing their Hallel Psalms that emphasize the hope of the coming Messiah. The religious leaders asked Jesus to stop the singing because they understood the people believed Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. Uh, it makes no difference that their understanding of the Messiah was off track. Uh, that would change when Jesus died and rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit came to replace him so that the disciples started, starting with the apostles, would preach the gospel far and wide. 
Then when Jesus answered their inquiry about his authority, we'll look at that verse again in the sermon, uh, when Jesus answers the inquiry about his authority, he challenged their thinking starting with John the Baptist ministry, but it went right over their heads. So he told a parable. Remember from last week? It mirrored a well-known Old Testament passage in Isaiah's prophecy. The parable starts with a picture of God's care for the people by putting them in charge of a beautiful vineyard and continues to mirror the coming of prophet after prophet so that the people would know what God demanded of them and that he cared about them. The prophets were rejected and even killed the vineyard owner's son, and it says this on purpose, whom he loved. This clearly under, is underlining John the Baptist's ministry when God pronounces Jesus as the son he loves. We know that Jesus was speaking of a soon coming crucifixion and of the Gentiles replacing the Jews as those who have primary responsibility to tell the world about salvation. And then next, you remember the spies who tried to trap Jesus? With a question, it was sort of like, Jesus, we just want to know one thing. We think you're the greatest person in the world. You always tell the truth, and they're just trying to flatter him, and uh, they're trying to trap him with a question regarding their relationship with the Roman government. And then when Jesus pronounces his most famous one-liner, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Obey the government unless they tell you to do something against God. Give to Caesar's what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. This totally blew the minds of the religious leaders, and we might have expected them to admit their defeat and leave Jesus alone, but no, no, they're not going to do that. They are persistent in their diabolical plan to get rid of Jesus, so now the left wing of the religious hierarchy enters the scene for the first time in Luke's gospel, and they come up with a very dumb plan. But even fools to persevere in pursuit of the difficult, or in this case, of the impossible. One can hardly imagine the question they're about to ask Jesus. This is especially notable when we understand who is asking Jesus about the afterlife. They're asking about the resurrection. Uh, they were the very liberal, very rich Sadducees who are desperate to find a way to eliminate Jesus from their lives. They were the dominant political party of the Jews at this time. They actually didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. But they did believe in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, and they believe it was inspired by God. And they had great respect for the writings of Moses. The problem is they interpreted the writings according to their own prejudices. All they really cared about was the power of the Romans the power that the Romans gave them, and that Jesus was threatening that power. That's all they cared about. So verse 27, here's what it says. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Now, no, I can't help myself. <laughs> Some of the Sadducees who say there's no resurrection so there's no meaning to life. You just die, and that's it. That's why they're sad, you see. <laughs> I can't help it. <laughs> Verse 28, here they are. 
teacher. Now, here's what they're doing. Teacher, you're great. We, read. we have a question for you, though, and this will really help us. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise off offspring, especially a son, for his brother. Now, just so you'll know that's true, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, here's what you read. I'll read it to you. It's on the screen. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, because the son was the inheritor in that culture, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. That's just pretty straightforward. But here's what they do with it. Verse 29, this is awesome. Well, it isn't, it's dumb. Now there were seven brothers, they said to Jesus. First one married a woman and died childless. And then now they hurry up. The second and then the third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Make a great novel, the truth behind this woman. <laughs> you don't want to marry her. Verse 32, but finally the woman died too. <laughs> then here's their question. Now then, Jesus, I can just see their self-righteousness. At the resurrection, which you believe in and we don't, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now listen, this question is silly to say the least. I would have expected Jesus to just walk away without comment. I mean, it would be like me doing an Easter message and I'm talking about, uh, you know, the new bodies. Maybe First uh, Corinthians 15, we get these new bodies and I'm talking about the new bodies uh, that we're going to get in heaven and somebody comes up and says, well, I, don't, I don't know which, about that. So just answer a question. Yeah, go ahead. Well, a cannibal eats a man <laughs> and then he dies and he's left on the ground. An animal comes by and, and eats the dead body and dies. And the body of the animal is washed into the sea and eaten by a fish. And the fish dies. And a bird picks it up and eats the fish. And a hunter kills the bird and eats the bird and dies. Now at the resurrection, how will the body come back together? I would just walk away. <laughs> well, here's what Jesus did. Jesus replied by teaching them some good theology. In verse 34, he says to these Sadducees, the people of this age that we're living in right now, now he's saying, marry and are given a marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given a marriage. Now, when it says those who are considered worthy, it implies those who God considers worthy. What does that mean? Well, it means they are believers. In the Old Testament, you were saved by faith. You kept the law uh, and did all of the sacrifices and all of that, and you believed in God by faith. And th therefore, you were considered worthy uh, by God. You were anticipating a Messiah to come eventually, and now we believe in Jesus specifically and in the cross and, and his death and resurrection. But So that's what it's, it's talking about. To use our lingo, 
Jesus is really saying that we understand to those who are saved and on the way to heaven and gone to heaven, they no longer take part in the age to come in the res- or in the age to come from the dead. They don't marry. They're not given in marriage, verse 36, and they no longer die. Why? Because they're like angels who no longer die. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Remember who he's talking to. They don't believe in the resurrection. They're trying to trick him and trying to trap him. Now, we're told in Genesis that it was not good for a man to be alone, for Adam to be alone. Uh, His name means man. So God makes out of Adam a woman, a partner, who would be an encouragement to Adam and also who would start to populate the world God had created. So therefore, in the resurrection, there will no longer be a need to create more people. Plus, there will be no more sin or death or a need to continue a family line. People do not marry in the afterlife. Uh, So the question coming from the Sadducees is completely irrelevant. Luke also wrote the book of Acts where he states in chapter 23, verse 8, in another context, but this is part of verse 8, the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. That's the two parties. The Sadducees were... It's really sad. I'm not trying to make a joke again. I mean, how sad to believe that nothing happens, that you die and that's it. I mean, I used to believe that. But it was easy to believe when you're in your 20s or teens and 20s. But I'm glad I don't believe it now. (laughs) Jesus is about to expose the ignorance of the Sadducees by demonstrating from Scripture, from the writings of Moses, that angels exist and that God is spirit And that even Moses talked of the patriarchs in his writings as if they were still living, even though they had physically died long before Moses met God at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. Jesus proves the hypocrisy of the Sadducees from the very scriptures that they said they believed in. Now, here's a point. I want to back off for a minute and make this point. Uh, When Jesus was driven into the wilderness after his baptism to be tempted by the devil. The devil used scripture to try to turn him away from what he knew was true. Jesus answered with scripture. It is incredibly important that we understand the Bible, not just the New Testament, uh, not just certain parts of it, but the whole Bible. That's a, that's a task that we must spend our whole life doing. We'll never understand it fully. It's an incredible book. I'm, as I read it again yet this year, read it through again, I don't even know how many times I've read the Bible through, uh, but I'm already learning new things. Uh, I just finished Leviticus. I'm in Numbers, and there are some things that I, thought, I never really have investigated that. And it's amazing after all these years how relevant the Scriptures are. And it's very, very important that we understand the Scriptures. Because you see, what was happening to the people here is that the, uh, the, the men in charge, and they were all men at that time, uh, who were the Sadducees, Pharisees, scribes, uh, all of these, they were teaching the people what would control the people more than anything else. And, and it's so important that we understand the Scriptures and that we spend our lifetimes uh, learning uh, exactly how they apply to us. So now Jesus says, in essence, 
to these Sadducees. Open your Bibles or unroll your scrolls to Exodus, where Moses meets God, who is spirit, at the burning bush. So look at verse 37. Verse 37. But in the account of the burning bush, these are the words of Jesus. Keep that in mind. In the account of the burning bush, you can see that in Exodus chapter 3, starting at verse 6. Uh, Write it down or make a note if you don't know it and go and read it later. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise. For he calls the Lord, that's Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, the the, the Sadducees didn't need a Hebrew lesson to realize on the spot that those scriptures were written by Moses as if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were still alive. You see, it wasn't that uh, God was their God, but not now because they're dead. It's that God is their God because they're not dead. And that's the way it's written in in the grammar of the Hebrew. And so uh, they, are, they know Hebrew. <laughs> well, of course, first language Hebrew, and, and they know exactly what he's saying, and they know it's true. They can't deny it. And so he, said, he goes on to say in verse 38, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For to him, all are alive. I mean, only living people can have a God. Verse 39, some of the teachers of the law responded. These are probably scribes who have had this argument with the Sadducees forever and can never beat them in their argument. They never even thought of this before. And so they're saying, well said, teacher. And then verse 40 says, and no one dared to ask him any more questions because they knew that they would not have a chance. But just to maybe answer a question or two in your mind, Remember the parable of Luke chapter 16, uh, where Jesus paints a picture of consciousness immediately after death. Uh, Most of you will know it. A beggar named Lazarus dies and is with Abraham. It's called Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. It's the equivalent of heaven. And a rich man dies who had ignored the beggar all these years, and now he dies, and he's in Hades, which is the equivalent of hell. And he is able to call out to the beggar who is in a far better place. Now, the, the, one of the points I really like in this parable is, well, may, maybe two or three points. Uh, first, it, they died and they're still alive. Uh, the, uh, the man in Hades isn't saying, I shouldn't be here. He's saying, I don't want anybody to be here. This is terrible. He's, he's sort of admitting he deserves to be there. Go tell my brothers, and, and you might know the rest of the story. But the only reason I bring it out is that Jesus over and over again made it clear that we're going to be still conscious and alive the moment our bodies, that we leave our bodies. I like this quote from Spurgeon. He writes in a sermon, the eternal God does not covenant, does not make agreements with temporal creatures who live only three score and 10 years and then go out like a candle. Great statement. Now, again, let's go back to the phrase approved by God. It should be the desire of all of us to be approved by God. The apostle Paul was a Pharisee who hated the church until he met Jesus, 
on his way to persecute Christians. His life became very difficult, very difficult. But he maintained his desire to please God because of his certainty of resurrection, of eternal life, of heaven. When he was in a dungeon, uh, he wrote a letter, the most joyous letter that you've ever read, called the Book of Philippians in the New Testament. He wrote this letter to the Christians in Philippi. It doesn't start out saying, oh, I'm so miserable in this dungeon and they've beaten me and all of this. No, it, no you, uh, if you didn't know he was in a dungeon, you'd think he was on a beach someplace enjoying himself. Let me just read you a few verses from the opening of Philippians chapter 1 in the New Living Translation. Listen to this. Paul writes, For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ, so I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between the two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, which would be far better for me, but for your sakes. You see, we're to be about other people. For your sakes, it is better that I continue to live, live. Knowing this, I am convinced that I'll remain alive so I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, you will have even more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. They know where he is. They know he's in the dungeon. Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then, whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you're standing together. I've underlined and made an italic uh, out of the word together because it's been our theme since the beginning of the year. You are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together. There's that word again, together, together. That's why in Hebrews it says, you know, don't stop gathering together is the habit of some. You can't love someone that you don't meet with. You can't help someone. You can't use your gifts. You're a puzzle piece in a jigsaw puzzle, and every piece is important. And so we need to be put in there so we can use our gifts and our shape and our size, small or big, in the body of Christ to be together uh, for the faith, which is the good news, meaning the good news about Jesus. That's the way we're to live. Paul lived until he died. Over and over, Jesus has been asked hostile questions, but now he has a question of his own that should stop his religious opponents in their tracks. He is asking his detractors who he is or who the Messiah is. Now, it would be accurate to say that the answer to what Jesus is about to ask is the most important question regarding our faith. The spies and then the Sadducees have tried their best to stump Jesus. Now he's about to stump them by asking a question about King David, their most famous king, and his son, and his son. So look at verse 41. This is a little difficult, but I've worked hard. I hope I can, you can just catch it. It's so profound. Verse 41, Jesus says to them, why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? 
He's asking an obvious question that was that that also said obviously everybody believed in that day that the Messiah, that the Christ, was the son of David. Everybody believed that. A blind man calling out to Jesus in Jericho. Do you remember that? He calls out. He can't see, but he hears and he knows it's Jesus. He says, "Son of David, Son of David, come and help me." The crowd going into Jerusalem called Jesus son of David when he entered Jerusalem. They believed he was the Messiah. They believed he was from God. And so it's a little bit hard to follow, but he's going to quote Psalm 110. So I put it on the screen. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It's a Messianic Psalm. And I'm just going to do uh, just one verse of it. Here it is. The Lord says to my Lord, this is King David writing this, Yahweh is the Lord, says to my Lord, that's the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, Jesus asks this question, verse 42, or makes a statement. David himself declares in the book of Psalms, and now Jesus is quoting what they knew by heart, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, the Messiah. Everybody listening to this considered the word Lord here to be David's son. When you look at the whole Psalm. So he's saying that David said, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, here's the question. David calls him Lord. Calls who Lord? The son, Lord. So Jesus says, how then can he be his son? So now here's what's happening. Jesus is claiming to be David's greater son, the Messiah. That's his authority. So Jesus is saying that David's Lord is the Messiah at an inference that was completely understood. They understood that Jesus is claiming to be that Messiah. Jesus is actually claiming to be deity. Now, a good proof text is in Romans, Paul's great theological uh, tomb, tome. Um, so here's what the apostle Paul writes opening the book of Romans Paul a servant of Christ Jesus the word servant is doulos in the Greek language it means slave he's glad to be a slave of Jesus so Paul a servant of Christ that's Messiah who is Jesus called to be an apostle Paul says I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel that he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. That goes back to the Christmas story. Uh, Mary, uh, Mary was in David's line. Jesus is a descendant of David. And therefore, they would call him a son of David. And who, uh, through the spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
So Jesus has just answered the question that we started with last week. Here was the question. Luke chapter 20, verse 2. They came up to Jesus and said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Well, his authority is his lordship. Jesus is Lord. Now, context. Could it be that Jesus, so close to the cross, was attempting to have these men reconsider their thinking by posing a question from their own scripture? He wanted them to reconsider and be saved. I've quoted this verse so often, many of you, I'm sure, have memorized it. Jesus is overlooking the temple area, thinking of his people, and he was sent to. Tears are coming down his cheeks, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you will kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children together like a, 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 a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You could have, but you wouldn't. You see, God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. That's why he sent Jesus. And finally, Jesus exposes the real reason for their blindness. It's in a word, hypocrisy, hypocrisy. Luke chapter 12 reads this way. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. In Luke 11, we have Jesus declaring a series of woes to the Pharisees. Woe, you Pharisees. Woe, you Pharisees. Over and over again, in which he declared them to be full of greed and wickedness, among many other things. And they responded by saying to Jesus, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. They were offended by what he said. Jesus had twice cleansed the temple. He had upset their little sheep fleecing operation. So now we have the reason they were blind to the truth in verses 45 to 47. So look at verse 45 in your, in your Bibles. While all the people were listening, remember he's in the temple precincts. Jesus said to his disciples, but there were lots of people there, beware of the teachers of the law. Boy, that perked up some ears. They like to walk around in flowing robes. And some people are saying, yeah, they sure do. Yeah, just on the streets so they can say, oh, Master, you're so wonderful. And they love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. And they have the most important seats in the synagogues where they sit there looking out over you with their hypocrisy written all over their faces. And, and they, have, they like to have the places of honor at banquets. They have the best seats at the Super Bowl, the box seats. A word for that? Pride. And then it says, they devour widows' houses. That means their estates. They devour widows' houses. It was a common thing that was done. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most Severely, There's nothing worse than hypocrisy, especially in religious people. 
Luke writes in his gospel about helping the poor and disadvantaged throughout the gospel. We don't know exactly what was happening regarding the widows, but I'm sure they found many ways of taking advantage of them, especially if the death of their husbands left behind a large estate. They have found all kinds of religious ways to make rich widows poor. Now, the lesson to learn here is to live humbly and love God completely. Pride uses people while humility cares for others. So finally, we have a contrast between the greed and pride of the religious leaders and a poor widow. The widow's an inspiration while the Sadducees and Pharisees are a shame. Jesus is less than a handful of days from horrible death on a cross. Nevertheless, he is still thinking more of others than himself and, and notices an act of faith that largely goes unnoticed by anyone. So uh, chapter 21 uh, starts off this way, only four verses. As Jesus looked up, he was in, in the part of the temple where they had these big 13 trumpet-like things where they threw their money and that made a lot of noise and everybody's watching all these, especially the rich people, if they line up to, to give publicly. So Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. They're called leptas. I've read all kinds of things about them. I even have pictures of them, but they're worthless. One person says about an eighth of a penny or another a fourth of a penny. That's the, they're just basically worthless. Two little small uh, copper coins she throws in. And Jesus says this in verse 3, Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow, she didn't even know he was looking at her, has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Now, you could translate it this way, and I think it's a better translation. You could read, but she, out of her poverty put in all her living. That's literally the way it, is, it comes in the Greek language. All her living is gone. She gave everything. She was giving an amount that would be worthless as far as the temple is concerned, but she was not giving to the temple. She was giving to God. Jesus was not, was not trying to denigrate those who gave much. He is not preaching a sermon about giving, but rather about motive and commitment and trust. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I think one of the best preachers of the 20th century, used to say, uh, giving is not biblical until we have to do without because of it. <laughs> I would add that commitment to Jesus that costs nothing is not yet true commitment. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. So what's the point of all we've studied this morning? Well, one point is, Beware of the scribes, but imitate the widow. She gave out of her need, sacrificially, trusting God would supply all her needs. She was an all-in follower of God. She was not a fan. Now, if you're visiting, you say, what's this not a fan thing? It's a book that I'm making everybody read, or I'm trying to. <laughs> yeah. And the idea behind the book is that as Christians, we're not fans. We're not in the stand cheering on the team. We're on the field getting banged around playing. And this woman was not a fan. She was on the field. Uh, God doesn't 
count the dollars. Instead, he weighs the motive of our giving and serving. Our giving represents our commitment to Jesus as Lord. So I close with two takeaways, and then we're done. Number one, work hard at knowing Scripture. Read your Bibles. Participate in Bible studies as we're doing right now. Take advantage of every opportunity to learn more. Women's ministry, men's ministry, youth ministry, home Bible studies, conferences. Be meeting together with others as often as possible. And then finally, I urge you, like the Apostle Paul urged in chapter 12, 1 and 2 of Romans, he said, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to because of the mercies of God, because all he's done for you, to give your lives as living sacrifices. It's the only thing that makes any sense. So I urge you, or us all, to live fully committed serving lives until the trumpet sounds or we go home to be with our Lord and Savior who is Jesus, the Messiah, who loved us enough to die for us. Stand with me. We're going to worship some more and I'll pray for you. Father, I just come to you this morning. I know that uh, passages like this sometimes are really difficult for us to get a grasp on. But by your Holy Spirit, if we really are open, we know exactly what you're saying to us here today. And so I pray if there's anyone among us here or watching online who doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would take this time right now to just simply pray a prayer that would be something like, Dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sins. I am a sinner. I'm not perfect. I need your help. I want to turn from my sins. Please come and save me and fill me with your spirit so that I can live for you. And if you pray that, no matter how stumbling it might be, he weighs your heart and will save you and you'll know it. And then, Father, I just pray for all of us in these very difficult times that we're living in. We know that heaven rules, a book that I'm reading that I love, it heaven rules. We know that, Father. And we know that you're, uh, you're not just randomly letting everything happen but it's all for a purpose. So help us to be purposeful, joyful, loving, committed Christians. Help us to be together as often as we can so that we may encourage one another and be encouraged by one another. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for loving us so much that you sent him to die for our sins. None of us deserved it but it's possible for anyone who calls in the name of the Lord to be saved. It doesn't matter who they are. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.